millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. A crypto exchange is a platform for trading cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, The second largest of them is called Kraken. It's valued at over $10 billion, and its founder and CEO, Jesse Powell, has been in the news a whole lot in the last few days. First of all, he put out a memorandum for his employees about the kind of culture he wants at Kraken, which got quite a few people upset, including, apparently, the New York Times. Second of all, cryptocurrencies, as you might have heard, have crashed to lows not seen for years down more than two-thirds from their recent highs. That all happened in the last few days. So clearly, if we want to understand the politics of crypto and what's actually going on, Jesse is the perfect person to talk to. And happily, he joins us from San Francisco. Hi, Jesse. Hey, thanks for having me on. So let's start, if we could, with your big memo that you published an edited version of, talking about what kind of culture you want at your company. The New York Times described it as a culture war stoked from the top. Uh, was that the plan? This is becoming a trend in the world where uh, a few people don't feel like they can work with anybody unless those people, everyone else adopts their views. And uh, so that's what we're trying to address here is that we have a few people in the company, very small minority of the company. Uh, you know, we're probably talking about 10, f- 10 people or fewer uh, who just are going to be offended by everything and uh, just need the rest of the company to follow everything that they want to do. So this is out of what? You have thousands of employees worldwide. 3,200 or so employees today. Uh, You know, you have these like a few people that uh, get really upset about something. They manage to affect each, you know, say like 10, 10, 20 people around them who are well-intentioned people who want their coworkers to be comfortable and feel safe at work and not be offended at work. Uh, But those people become distracted by, by the feelings of the small group. And then those people who are distracted, uh, you know, catering to these people are then not getting their work done. And then it sort of affects another layer of people around them who are just like, you know, we got to do something about this because people aren't getting work done anymore. Uh, You know, they might be completely apolitical. What are the kind of issues? Is it the normal, it's gender and race and the normal kind of hot button issues that they are upset about? Or what are the examples that have gone wrong? Yeah, it's mostly been... um, DEI, so that's diversity, equity, inclusion related topics. So that's like um, when and how can we uh, say what our our preferred pronouns are? Uh, When can we ask other people for their preferred pronouns? 
Um, should we have a program of uh, hiring based on particular racial status? Um, things like that. And well, while we're on them, what are your answers to those questions? When should your employees share their pronouns? And do you have a program for hiring on racial status? We don't have a program for hiring on racial status. Uh, for the pronouns, you know, we went back and forth on this. We had a lengthy debate on this, which was you know, another problem we can get into. This was, uh, you know, something that I, I opened up expecting to have a very rational debate about, you know, a public policy matter, uh, quickly devolved into, you know, why don't you just respect people? Why don't you just do what people say and, you know, change your speech to, to conform to whatever request someone might have, like out of respect. Is the rule in your company that you cannot your pronouns or you're not allowed to have them after your email or is it just not mandatory or what's the, the rule? When you're interfacing with someone outside of the company or even a new employee, if you're part of the onboarding process of a, a new employee, uh, you're not allowed to, to offer your pronouns. You're not allowed to ask because we feel like that. We've gotten a lot of feedback actually that this is, uh, people see this as extremely anxiety inducing, maybe discriminatory. Uh, people have to wonder if you're asking for their pronouns in a job interview. Is that because their job, whether they're going to be uh, accepted, will be determined on whether or not, like how they identify? Uh, so, you know, we got a lot of feedback. People wondering, like, why? Why is your recruiter? Why is the interviewer asking me about my uh, my gender identity in the interview? Like, is that relevant to this job somehow? And so. Um, so we prohibited it in that in that form. Um, and inside the company, uh, you're not allowed to. We're, we're not going to have like at the start of every call, five minutes to everyone go around and state their pronouns. Uh, you can have it in your in your workplace bio. Uh, you can put anything you want in there. And um, there's no policy enforcing the uh, the accommodation of that. So uh, if you ask someone to do it, they don't necessarily have to do it. Um, and if you guys disagree about what your pronouns, uh, wh which pronouns are going to be used, um, you have to kind of work it out as adults. So th this is a kind of philosophically interesting one already, isn't it? Because I would say your philosophy as described in the memo is broadly libertarian or kind of let freedom reign as much as possible. But here you are actually basically mandating against using pronouns, at least in certain contexts. So you've had to, you've had to intervene. You're not just saying anyone can do what they like. Yeah, you know, I think I think uh, we're we're for freedom of speech when it comes to you know the the U.S. Constitution. You know, protects the individual against the government. It doesn't protect you know individuals inside of a private business uh, to be able to say whatever they want anytime they want. So if you go to Disneyland, the guy who's in the Mickey Mouse costume does not get to stop you and tell you what his pronouns are and you know his personal preferences for you know, turkey legs or whatever, uh, you know, so we take the same position that when you're when you're public facing, uh, when you're interfacing with clients or business partners, you're, you know, you're a customer support agent, you don't get to just reveal a lot of personal preferences about yourself. And you also don't get to ask our clients, uh, you know, a bunch of personal sensitive information about them either. Just touch on that second one that you mentioned briefly in the introduction, which is that in your DEI policy or, or whatever your policy is on how to include uh, previously marginalized groups, you don't have a preference towards certain racial groups. You're, you're hiring colorblind. Is that, is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. So you know, we have employees in over 70 countries speaking 50 plus languages. And so, you know, when you get into thinking about how such a policy would be implemented, um, you know, which country do you start with? If you want to hire minority groups, you know, where in the world do you start? We're hiring from all over the world. It's not just what are minority groups in the United States or, you know, in a particular city in the United States. Uh, so, you know, I think once you get into a, a global situation, it becomes, you know, really, really difficult to to kind of rank, you know, who is who's the most uh, the biggest minority group or the smallest minority group uh, or who's the most oppressed, you know? And I mean, if you just look at the United States, I don't think anybody in the United States makes like the top 10 of, you know, the world's most oppressed people. So uh, that's just something that, you know, we, we've chosen to just sort of, uh, you know, in terms of diversity, you know, we really think about it in terms of the diversity of thought that people can bring, the perspectives that they can bring, uh, not checking boxes, you know, on a census form that, you know, to, to match certain like racial categories. And is the same true of gender in your organization? You, you have no interest in what the male-female split is? You know, we do have an interest in tracking that at a high level just to, to see whether or not, you know, we have, we might have some kind of bias in the, um, in the recruiting process. Uh, however, you know, we're not targeting a specific ratio or anything like that. How is the gender balance at Kraken? It's about 65-35. And how does that compare to other, other crypto or equivalent businesses? Um, you know, in, in crypto, I would guess we've got a, a fairly strong um, quantity of females relative to males um, in the company. It's, I mean, the industry is, is very heavily male. Uh, however, increasingly, it's attracting more, more females. Um, but I think this is just a, a problem in tech broadly is that, you know, it's STEM in general is uh, attracts more males. So this kind of got you into some trouble as well. There was some internal Slack conversation that was leaked to The New York Times discussing women and Bitcoin or women and programming or areas that traditionally attract fewer women as a percentage. Um, and then you apparently indicated that maybe you thought there, that there were open questions there and that it, it wasn't necessarily true that women and men are equally interested in the same things. Or what is your actual opinion on that topic for the, for the record where we won't spin it in either direction? Basically, that conversation that they were referring to uh, was essentially about whether men and women think about finances differently or risk taking differently. And, uh, you know, whether they would be um, you know, more likely to just prefer cash over Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, that, that got into like further discussion with people sharing uh, studies and their own anecdotal views and their own, um, you know, as you might imagine, people from 70 countries, people have very different cultural views about gender. You know, some cultures even celebrate gender differences. And so... Um, What's your view on like, it? Do, do you think that there, there is a difference there between the sexes and men are more attracted to riskier options and therefore more attracted to Bitcoin and, or other cryptos. Yeah, I mean, that certainly seems seems to be the case, although uh, the the level of Bitcoin knowledge uh, block did a really great uh, research study recently. And um, the male to female interest in Bitcoin or knowledge of Bitcoin seems to differ by geography. So it might just be local cultural uh, you know, familiarity with dealing with money. 
Um, in the United States, it's it's way heavy on you know male knowledge uh, above female knowledge, and I think in the United States in general as well. Like if you look at things like uh, car accidents, you know, like sixteen-year-olds uh, dying in car accidents is like ninety-five percent male, you know, in the United States. So I think there's some evidence to say whether it's nature or nurture that um, it, at least in in many cultures, men are much more risk-taking than women are. I think probably most people, if you did an opinion poll, would agree with that. Um, do you think the same is true, though, of, as you mentioned, it, STEM subjects or computer programming? Uh, at that point, it gets more controversial. Do you think that men are more attracted to computer programming as a profession? And do you think that should be, we should try to counterbalance that somehow? Or do you think we should just let it happen? Or well, I guess it it gets the question of like, what is the ideal balance? Or is there something, is this a, a societal thing that has caused uh, this gender imbalance in certain roles? Or is it something natural that appeals to the, the male and female sexes differently? You know, there's just something inherent about it, you know, like if men are more risk-taking naturally, you know, or, or maybe men like to, uh, are like to play with, you know, um, computers more than women, I don't know, for whatever reason, cultural or, uh, or there's something innate there. Um, you know, I, I think we should figure that out. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in not trying to get people to do things that are just sort of not, not natural to them, or they just don't feel, feel like they would enjoy doing. And if there is in fact a difference between like what, what men and women broadly enjoy, uh, then I think it might be a mistake to you know, encourage people to go down a career path that they're actually like likely not to enjoy. Um, however, you know, of course, there's exceptions all over, so everyone should make their own individual choice. But um, I think trying to target a specific ratio, uh, you know, I think as a policy might be flawed. You know, I think we should probably target something more like happiness at work or something like that first. One final concrete example before we zoom out and look at the bigger picture. Um, you mentioned bodily autonomy in your manifesto or in your, your work ethic document. And supposedly in the original version that referenced COVID vaccines and how you weren't going to mandate them and you weren't going to have a company policy on that. I think that was excised from, from the public version and it just became uh, a reference to, to vaccines uh, to do with influenza. Is it your view then that whether or not people take a vaccine for COVID or anything else is should be an individual choice and that neither companies nor governments should have a view on it? Or, or where do you stand on that? Yeah, I think, I, I think companies, well, you know, a company like ours, which is fully remote, I mean, we have no reason to, to mandate uh, a vaccine on people. I mean, even for something even more severe than COVID, I think as a society, uh, to mandate a vaccine in the absence of, you know, especially one that seems like it's it's very experimental so far. We don't have a lot of, you know, long-term, obviously, uh, long-term studies on the effects of it. And I, I think to roll out something like that broadly, to make it mandatory, um, is just very dangerous. And, you know, I think it's immoral to impose such a thing on, on a population broadly. Uh, you know, I think people cannot give informed consent when they don't understand what all the risks are. So, um, you know, certainly with inside the company, we have no vaccine mandate. And in fact, 
uh, for corporate retreats, when we do all get together, uh, we do them in places where you can be vaccinated or not, and uh, there's no problem. And we don't ask about your vaccination status. And um, you know, people can come or not if they're comfortable with that. So zooming out a little bit, what is interesting here is that there seems to be a little bit of a trend. I don't know if we have enough data points to say that it is a trend, but certainly Elon Musk is perhaps the most famous example of a libertarian leaning um, or someone who is happy to stick two fingers up at whatever the kind of um, high status progressive uh, establishment view is on certain topics. Uh, he has even said that he will be supporting the Republicans or describes himself as Republican. So he, even beyond people like Peter Thiel, is a more mainstream figure who now seems to break with what we think of as a kind of left-leaning orthodoxy within technology. Um, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Democratic Party has very deep ties with some of the um, big technology giants. Do you think something is changing or how would you describe it? Is this a breakaway faction within Silicon Valley that you now find yourself part of or what's the truth of it? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, Silicon Valley definitely is very left leaning. Um, I think that there's been a bit of a, a pushback recently because I feel like um, the the demands have kind of gone too far. You know, it's sort of it's sort of become, uh, you know, there's this contingent of people who basically, if you don't agree with them, you're evil, you're a Nazi, and you must be destroyed at all costs. And you know, these people inside of these companies, you know, become a cancer, and that spreads to other people. And so, um, I think that I think that there's starting to be some pushback because of the ex extremeness of uh, the views that are there and and just the intolerance of of other perspectives. Um, so I I think um, business leaders have had enough of it, and I think they're seeing like what what problems it creates inside their companies, and and that you know most people really just want to do good work and and not be bothered at work, and um, you know the this the small group of people that are really um, you know ideologically motivated and uh, intolerant of other views. Uh, are just dragging everybody down. And so I think they're starting to push back. And, you know, I think there's, there's, uh, you know, uh, Nicholas Taleb, uh, I think in one of his books, says something along the lines of, you know, the, the loudest voice wins, basically, the most outraged, you know, minority wins uh, in a battle, because, you know, if you're just sort of unwilling to concede anything, and uh, you're willing to be outraged, and you're willing to drag everybody down with you, um, then people tend to cave to that. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And so that has been seen as a successful strategy. And um, I think if you don't get those people out of your company, they will drag everyone else down with them. And uh, I think they're now being removed from companies quite broadly. What's interesting about your, the kind of document you produce is that it is quite a political document. You, you say overtly that Kraken should be involved in politics. People should expect you to lobby the government for certain things. Your view you describe as libertarian or classically liberal or various terms like that. And that is, that is the house view of the company. So, so there is a certain politics innate to the mission of your company. Do you think that's fair? That actually, if you have this big mission, which is to drive crypto forward and to help what you see as a, a, a revolution in, in finance, that is attached to a certain political worldview, which makes you a political actor. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of feel like the, the libertarian view uh, is, is sort of the most neut- neutral view. You know, I mean, the view is basically minimal government interference, let people do as they may, let the free market sort itself out, um, let people help each other voluntarily. Uh, so I feel like that's sort of the most neutral view. Uh, and yeah, I guess it makes us, you know, by taking what I view as that more neutral view, I guess we're not picking a side, you know, either left or right or, or whatever. Um, you know, we're not aligned to any particular political party. Um, it's sort of, you know, just our, our view is like, you know, our right to, uh, you know, it's very, very much informed by the, the United States Constitution, you know, and the rights that come with that. And, um, you know, it is it is taking a stand and saying, you know, we have uh we have a mission as a company that mission involves obtaining uh alignment and support with uh politicians around the world and um yeah we may donate to some of those politicians and some of those politicians may have views on things positions on things that are uh bad 
you know, that that maybe I personally don't like, but maybe they're really pro crypto and we really need them. And and, you know, crypto is the bigger mission. I feel like if we can deliver a global currency and a global store of value like Bitcoin to the world, uh, we will be able to undo a lot of damage that the government has done. So that's mission number one. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the primary thing we look at when making donations to politicians. I guess realistically, in an American context, the Republicans are more aligned with the libertarian worldview, at least most of them, than the Democrats. Uh, the people who are going to be about cutting red tape for crypto are going to be found within the Republican Party. So I've got to ask, do you think that makes you a Republican? Elon Musk has said he is. What about you? Uh, no, it definitely doesn't make me Republican. Um, you know, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the Republicans, I think, are more closely aligned with smaller government, uh, at least historically, and, and cutting red tape and um, supporting American business and American competitiveness. Um, however, uh, you know, they certainly seem to have a lot of other things going on with their platform that, you know, company completely ignore, you know, that, that I don't personally align with. Um, so, you know, as you say, they, they have been um, probably more so our allies in Washington than the Democrats. Um, however, you know, we want to work with, with everybody. And, um, you know, I'm personally don donating as well to politicians on both sides of the aisle. Um, anyone who says that they're in support of Bitcoin and are doing things in support of Bitcoin um, is who will support. We should expect most Kraken uh, donations to be in the direction of the Republicans in the short term. Um, until the Democrats come around, you know, it will probably be imbalanced. Yeah. So hopefully that's some incentive for Democrats to, to take up a positive view of, of crypto and support the industry. So let's get on to this bigger mission of yours then, because Bitcoin has crashed really very seriously in the past days and weeks. Um, prices were under $20,000 as recently as yesterday. It was above 60,000 or even up to 70,000 not so many months ago. For many people who have taken a punt or even put large chunks of their life savings into Bitcoin, this is a very devastating situation. What's your reaction to it? it, it does it spell the end? Is it something that we should be very troubled about to do with the whole crypto movement? The last time Bitcoin was, was in this range of uh, 18 to 20 thousand dollars was like December of 2020. So I mean, we're not even talking about like that long ago. I mean, it had an incredible run uh, over the last um, two years, and I think we're just sort of, you know, back on trend now. And um, I don't think it's anything to be worried about. This has happened several times. You know, you look at these charts; it's like Bitcoin dies, you know, every four years, and then it it just keeps coming back. So um, I think if if you invest in Bitcoin, I always tell people, can you hold it, you know, hold it for at least five years. If you can hold it for at least five years, then don't worry about it. If you're thinking about like paying your rent next week, then it's probably not the best place to store your money as a store of value uh, because the volatility could be, you know, 50%. It could move 50% uh, in either direction in the matter of a week. Uh, so don't use your, your pocket money to buy Bitcoin, but if you can hold it for five plus years, it, the, the chart looks really good for that kind of time frame. And do you think this is the dip? I mean, are you buying more now? Do you think it's it's upwards from here? Yeah, I just bought. Um, I, I said I was going to buy when it got to $20,000 and I was asleep when that happened. So I woke up and bought it at 18 two. 
So um, yeah, so I'm I'm all in now. I, I spent all the available money that I had, and uh, and now um, you know I'm fully long Bitcoin, and looks like I'm I'm already up, you know, about ten percent today. You know, there's even countries that have really invested in Bitcoin, and a lot of the critics will say that crashes like this do undermine its claim to be a, a, a store of value that is a reasonable place to put even long-term savings if it can lose 90% or 50% in such short term. Your argument to them is basically premised on the fact that long-term it's going to carry on going up. Is that right? So you're saying this is, yes, it's volatile, but you still think overall the trend will be upwards. You know, the fundamentals of Bitcoin keep, keep getting better. And I don't see any reason to, to not find it even more attractive as time goes on, especially if you can hold it long term. So including in your, in your company document, you say it's time to think about taking more of your paycheck in Bitcoin because the fundamentals have only improved. You stand by that even now. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I just bought a lot of Bitcoin the other day uh, because I felt like it was, it was dramatically uh, underpriced. So here is the thing which I'm deeply interested in your answer to, because it's something I haven't quite understood, which is that the philosophy behind Bitcoin is a kind of libertarian one, as you have just described it. It's about reducing the power of governments to interfere in your personal affairs, to liberate currencies from the interference of policymakers. And a lot of the rhetoric is about being for the little guy, people in developing countries that don't have access to good currency or poorer people. And yet, large portions, maybe even the majority of Bitcoins are owned by very wealthy individuals. And it seems practically to be more of a kind of way to move money around easily by very wealthy people who find democratic governments kind of inconvenient. And they want to continue with their international globalist lifestyle. So that to me is a bit of a contradiction. You, that you're, the Bitcoiners are presenting themselves as populists on the one hand, being for the little guy. And yet the reality is it's a lot of rich people making a lot of money and probably the less sophisticated retail investors who put their savings in and out of Bitcoin, maybe at the wrong times, are not really winning from it. Tell me why I'm wrong. You know, you're right that, that the... Wall Street has entered the market uh, in a substantial way. There are a lot of hedge funds trading Bitcoin, and um, you know funds like uh, you know MicroStrategy is holding a lot of Bitcoin. El Salvador itself, as a country, is holding Bitcoin. Uh, so there are definitely some people with deep pockets holding some Bitcoin uh, as part of their portfolio. Um, but you know, I, I think the fundamental differentiator of Bitcoin is that it's actually accessible to everybody. Yes, it's it's kind of there are a few people that own a lot of it, uh, but that goes for the stock market and it goes for gold and it goes for, for just about anything else, real estate. Uh, you know, there's, there's a concentration of wealth uh, just in the world and um, wealthy people tend to own more of stuff. Uh, but the great thing about Bitcoin is that there's nothing that can prevent anyone else from owning it. You know, anyone can, can join the network at any time. And uh, there's not a bank or a regulator or someone in the way saying, wait a minute, you, you're not allowed to to own Bitcoin, you're not allowed to spend your Bitcoin. Um, so there's nothing that can stop you, which is the fundamental difference between the crypto system and the legacy system, which is sort of a fully permissioned system where you need the approval of some authority to, to participate in the network. It isn't, I guess, the flip 
side to the argument is that those democratically elected governments, which are attached to countries, are the defenders of the little guy. At least that's the theory that, you know, by having a vote, you have some control over the world you live in. And if money is totally detached from countries, and it just moves freely around, there'll be no accountability. And actually, the little guy will have even less power, because it will just be this international elite moving their money around and doing whatever they like. There's no, there's no stop to that power at that point. Well, I think the elite are already doing that. I don't know. I don't know why Bitcoin is different. Um, the current system leaves over, you know, up close to 2 billion people out in the cold entirely. They have no access to financial services, period. So, um, you know, they're dealing with like cash under the mattress and they have no digital form of payment. They have no way to interface with, uh, you know, Amazon or buy things online. Um, they might have to use uh, payday advance services or check cashing services, which charge them 20%. They might be using Western Union to send uh, remittances internationally, which might charge them you know, 20% or some you know, really high minimum fee. Final question on this. It would seem to me that most populist voters, people who are electing in these, these governments that are trying to sort of resist the, the, the establishment that's been there for 30 years, do not tend to be libertarians. Most of the populist governments being elected, not just the one of Donald Trump, but around the world, have quite a lot of big government programs in, attached to them. Uh, they're about reducing globalization, about putting up boundaries and borders, about using the power of government to protect people from this globalized world. And yet Bitcoin seems to be on the opposite side of that ledger. It seems to be something that enhances the globalized world, and therefore it's a sort of anti-populist project. That's what I'm struggling to get past. And tell me, how do you see that? I think taking away the power of money from the government, uh, while, while you know, every government could still have their own currency, it would just be competing in a marketplace of currencies with Bitcoin and with other cryptocurrencies and with anything else. And I think you, you leave it up to the choice of the people to decide which currency they're going to use. I think most people would choose to use currency like Bitcoin, I mean, especially if you're someone who's traveling a lot, you know, I, I have, I don't know, stacks of like random currencies from traveling around the world that like I just never traded back in. And, you know, it would eliminate that kind of a problem of having to con convert currencies frequently when you're moving between markets. And I mean, this is how some businesses make all their money is just these exchange rates. And, you know, I think if you can reduce fees, reduce the, the time it takes to make a transaction, eliminate the friction in a transaction, you create a much more inclusive world for people. Um, and also, I think governments have shown that they're not capable of properly managing a currency. I mean, just look at the inflation in the United States now and look at the, the death of many countries due to hyperinflation of their local currency. And so I think people have lost a lot of trust in government's ability to manage a currency. And I think they would prefer something that is global and not run by a few people you know, making decisions for the whole country. Although if I'd taken my money out for my holiday two weeks ago in Bitcoin, it would be worth a lot less than it was then. I guess that's the, it's still it's quite a bit major hurdle to, to clear. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the volatility will, will go down over time uh, as more of the world comes on to the Bitcoin platform and there's more liquidity. Um, you know, again, I certainly would not 
say like don't put money you're planning on spending in the next two weeks you know take a, a percentage of if you if you have an investment portfolio that's stocks and commodities and a bunch of other stuff maybe put 10 percent of it in bitcoin maybe put you know 20 percent but uh definitely don't don't think of it like you're going to want to sell it again in a few weeks. You know, think of it like you're going to hold it for a few years at least. Let me ask you to sum up looking at the situation in Silicon Valley and in the kind of world of technology and crypto that you inhabit. Do you think we're at a change moment? Do you think Elon Musk, yourself, other people speaking really openly and clearly about these kind of issues is, is part of an important change and that, that the atmosphere is going to be different from now on? You're referring to kind of like the woke environment or the yeah. politicization of the workplace. Yeah, I think I think that there's the, the pendulum is starting to swing back the other way, and I think there's some pushback against um, people kind of attempting to commandeer the company for their own mission, you know, at odds with the mission of of the company. And uh, I think that people are seeing that you can push back now. You know, I think for a while. Uh, there was a fear that you would be canceled, and this is still this is still a, a fear, I'm sure, for many that if you push back against this woke agenda, uh, that you will be canceled somehow. You know, you'll be dragged in the media, and I mean, just as we saw with the New York Times hit piece, uh, the media is is more than ready to cancel people for pushing back against uh, this extremist agenda. Uh, so I think you have to be prepared and ready to deal with that. But I think you know, from our perspective. It's worth it, and the response uh, to our culture document and our, our commitment to our culture uh, and taking a stand on this has been overwhelmingly positive. And in fact, you know, we've seen a, a big uptick in the number of job applications just in the last week as well. So you haven't been burnt by the last few days. You, we might be hearing more from you in the future. You know, it, it, it's never good to have a negative piece come out about you. There's also starting to be some backlash on the media as well. You know, I think people are tired of this cancel culture and they're tired of these hit pieces. And um, I think they just want honest journalism back. Maybe a career in politics after this, Jesse. Would you, would you consider it? Probably not, because I, I like to be able to do what I want. And I think I would be incredibly infuriated by the bureaucracy uh, of you know, trying to do the right thing, but um, not being able to get a bunch of other politicians on board with me. That sounded like a non-100% denial. I'm going to take that as a glimpse of possibility. It's possible. Anything could happen. Who knows? Jesse, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. That was Jesse Powell, the founder and CEO of Kraken, the crypto platform. He was making a couple of predictions there. Number one, I'd say, is that there's some kind of sea change afoot in tech in Silicon Valley, pushing back at some of these, what he described as woke ideas or progressive ideas that you couldn't speak out against. And alongside Elon Musk, we've been seeing some quite powerful voices taking a different view. So it will be interesting to see whether more of that happens in the near future. The other prediction, of course, was that Bitcoin, which is the biggest of the cryptocurrencies and the central part of his own company, has now passed its lows and will be increasing in coming days and weeks. He said that he's actually invested a big chunk of his own money just a couple of days ago. So that is a very easy prediction to track and I look forward to seeing whether he's right. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.